think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 55 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 56th episode and the last of our summer episodes. Uh, I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Nathan Rainbow. And we're here today with a special guest, uh, Etienne's former boss, Andrew House. Yeah, thanks Welcome. for coming. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Unfortunately, we're not going to start off with a recap of all the shenanigans that happened in Halifax. Um, we will perhaps get around to that, probably not as Laurent is about to go on vacation. Um, I might do a special episode with uh, with another friend. We'll see how that goes. But for the time being, we're here to discuss the political career of Mr. House, um, mainly because he had had he has had a long and esteemed political career on the Hill, about as long as anyone. I think longer than you're probably in the 99th percentile in terms of longevity of political staffers. I think that's probably true for conservatives and liberals, but NDP staffers stick around a very long time. <laughs> Like, there are people who have been around since, like, very early 2000s, like pre-Jack Layton, if that gives you an idea. That is fair. Some constant jobs are also, are 20-year yes. gigs, but in terms of actually being on the Hill, how long were you there? About nine and a half years. Nine and a half years all in. And you started as something of a liberal, inadvertently... That's true. That actually predates the, uh, the beginning of the nine and a half, but my, my first gig uh, on the Hill was with uh, my favorite senator, George Baker. At least he's my favorite liberal senator. <laughs> now retired. Uh, he was my childhood MP and uh, a great guy, friend of our family. And when I was here going to school, uh, he gave me a call one day and said, why don't you come over and do a research project on Law of the Sea? Oh, hell yeah. He <laughs> <laughs> found all about fringed flags and like... I mean, who wouldn't <laughs> jump at that? He was the Minister of Veterans Affairs, but also he had uh, political responsibility for Newfoundland. Right. And I had uh, an amazing six months in his office and... Uh, it all came crashing to a, uh, a halt when he took a stand on uh, Newfoundland shrimp quotas. Shrimp being caught off the coast of Newfoundland, being processed uh, in Prince Edward Island. I see. And he was given a choice, uh, back off or consequence will follow. And he stood on principle, represented his constituents, and suddenly we were no longer staffers of any stripe. <laughs> and that's sort of how the Liberal Party and I broke up, left a... Real bad taste in my mouth, and uh, that was the end. But did you finish your Law of the Sea project? I sure did. There you go. It was uh, tabled uh, at Fisheries Committee and uh, stands as some sort of testament to something I used to know <laughs> about uh, about the water column and uh, legal jurisdiction over same. There you go. Very good. And so from that, you finished law school. You went on a bit of an international uh, expedition. Can you tell me about that and sort of how that tied back into your political career a little later? Yeah, so I, I um, stepped away uh, from uh, from the law, uh, at least temporarily. I, I finished articling and was, uh, was invited to do an internship at the UN and uh, went to Kosovo. And uh, ironically, uh, participated in uh, the formation of a long gun registry, <laughs> <laughs> which my uh, conservative brethren find hysterical and disgusting. And uh, I can only I can only hope to remind them that these were military weapons that were being categorized. Well, that's that's obviously that's just a, a fake category that's made up by scared liberals. So, <laughs> so in that in that environment, it was fascinating. I mean, everyone had six Kalashnikovs under their bed. Uh, they were happy to give us one. And uh, we thought we were doing great work. And I think to a certain extent, uh, because we were, we were trading not dollars for guns, but development projects. 
and uh, people got wells, they got hospital beds and, and uh, small libraries in their villages. This is like a gun buyback sort of thing? It, except it wasn't a buyback. We, okay. We, you, you Development. Know, the theory of the case was you cannot put euros into the hands of folks who may use it, and, yeah. and, and perhaps justifiably so, to buy more guns, more bigger and better guns. Can I tell you, can I t- sorry to derail this, can I just share a great historical anecdote? By um, all means. So after uh, the Highland, the Highland Re- Rebellion, sorry, in the mid-1700s in Scotland... Uh, you had a sort of like Jacobite sort of people loyal to the Stuart dynasty who were stuck around sort of, you know, continuing to be rebels and generally being making a nuisance of themselves to the British government. So the British government said, okay, well, what we're going to do, we're going to buy back their guns. Hmm. So what they do is they then, the Jacobites, import a, basically a ship full of like clearance, <laughs> like garbage like muskets from uh, the Dutch. Mm-hmm. They then give that ship full of muskets to the British government and use that money to buy very good guns from France. So <laughs> yeah. exactly what happened there. So Yeah. So finally the UN caught on to this, uh, this trick and uh, they, they, they tried to do it right. Smart. Um, you know, whether, whether it accomplished what they were trying to do uh, in its entirety, I doubt it. Uh, still so the region is known for its stability today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, I, and I take full credit for that. <laughs> So you went on, uh, you went to Kosovo, um, you had some experiences there, and then you eventually came back to Canada. And did, did being in Kosovo change sort of your political philosophy, your political respect of the world at all? I mean... <laughs> because the, the UN intern is not the, the standard bearer for the Conservative Party, typically. No, uh, nor is the legal aid lawyer, which, which I also was uh, back in the day. And uh, both of those experiences, rather than driving me away from conservatism, actually pushed me towards. Uh, in the courtroom, I saw firsthand the way people game the system, and that, that sort of pushed me towards probably a more conservative outlook on criminal justice. In Kosovo, what I saw was a complete lack of uh, Canadian presence, with a couple of really notable exceptions. There were, I think, two or three uniformed CF members on the ground who who were there as liaison officers and did a good job. But we weren't present in what was then the world's leading peacekeeping operation. And that bothered me because it was done through the doctrine of soft power, which was a liberal outlook and, and doctrine of the day. And in my view, we just we were free riding as a country. We weren't present uh, in the field of battle, literally. Now, it was a, I'm not suggesting it was a full-blown conflict by the time I got there. There was still shooting. None of it was at me. Um, it was a dangerous place, and I thought that, that Canada should have had a role. And so as I returned to Canada, this was one more factor that sort of stacked up in favor of, I want to I look at something different and examine a different worldview than the one I'd grown up with in Newfoundland, which was a dedicated, capital L, liberal view of the world. Fair. And then where, so following your stint at uh, Veterans Affairs, um, you went to Kosovo, and then you came back. How did you get into the the conservative political staffing? Did you first get engaged in party politics in Newfoundland? And then make your way to Ottawa, or how did the transition back to Ottawa happen? So I feel like it was largely tricked into it, uh, and, and and the way it happened was this: uh, I I had gone to school with one of Stockwell Day's sons, Luke, uh, who was, remains a friend to this day, and uh, he came to me one day. We were in Halifax. That's where I came back to after Kosovo, and and, uh, and did the legal aid thing. And he said, "Look, there's going to be a nomination." Uh, we should get involved. And it was for the riding of Halifax proper. And of course, I heard him to say, 
will you support me in seeking the nomination? When in fact, what he had in mind was, no, I'll, you're going to be the candidate. And so I ended up running against Alexa McDonough in 2006 in Halifax. Lost horribly, <laughs> but had an amazing time doing it and met all kinds of people, um, including uh, had contact with, uh, with folks who eventually would, would be responsible for staffing up the government. And uh, after the election, uh, about three months back practicing law, uh, I got a call from the Attorney General's office to say, we want you to go and interview with a guy named Rob Moore who was the uh, MP for, uh, for Fundy Royal yeah. and uh, is trying to, again, become the, M- the MP for Fundy Royal and uh, was the parliamentary secretary to the justice minister. And eventually I, I went to work with him uh, a few weeks later. And that sort of triggered the start of your formal career in Ottawa. Exactly. I was placed in uh, the Attorney General's office, in Vic Tabe's ministerial office, uh, and was cross-tasked. They must have done this alphabetically. I, I had Atlantic Affairs, Anti-Terrorism, and what was then called Aboriginal Affairs. Uh, and those were my three very eclectic files, and they were fantastic files. So you started in justice, but you bounced around government a little bit, as well as there's sort of, I always see it as three or four, depending if you count stakeholder relations and appointments, um, streams in a minister's office. Typically, there's sort of parlor affairs and issues management, um, policy and communications being the three sort of primary career tracks. And you went between all of those, is that right? No, I, I did all of the the functional areas except parlor affairs. Okay, never parlor affairs. Never, which is why I keep asking really annoying questions about parlor affairs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand it. <laughs> That is fair. I mean, if you if you listen to the podcast, you might gather a few more insights, but uh, we we try our best. So you w- between your career, which departments did you serve in? Heritage is in there somewhere. Justice, public safety, immigration, immigration, industry, and then finishing okay. with uh, okay. public safety. That was a lot of them. So yeah. five or six departments. A lot of those in senior roles as sort of director level or above. Um, director of communications at some points, directors, director of policy, chief of staff. Of course, you you finished uh, your term in off, well in office uh, with me as my chief of staff mm-hmm. to the minister of public safety. During all of that time, which portfolio did you sort of? I, I suspect I may know, but which portfolio did you grow the most fond of, or think had sort of the most <laughs> the most interesting issues? Oh, it's such a difficult question, and, and you know, so many of your your listeners with vested <laughs> interests will be will be hurt by this answer. Um, I I enjoyed if you say heritage, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> heritage was such a fine place to work. Um, heritage Heritage was a difficult place to work, primarily because I was a mostly Anglophone director of communications to a, a, a mostly Francophone minister. But that's a different story. <laughs> uh, public safety was was by far um, not only the longest, but the had the most depth of involvement and probably where the, the best relationships were built and none were better than, than the team we had in our ministerial office. Um, you know, it is exactly what they say. Eventually the, the work, uh, the issues start to melt away and you're, you're, you are largely, because the issues are so difficult, you're working um, in service of the people you are with and uh, hoping to help them do the best job they can and protect them where necessary, recognizing that you're, you're being protected by them hour by hour. It's a really hard place. And um, the people who work there as officials know that. They're often the meat and the sandwich between the very powerful agencies. 
and the very powerful forces that are the center, PCO and PMO. And they've got to navigate that stuff while respecting law enforcement mandates uh, on the part of most of the agencies. Yeah, It can be a totally impossible place to go to work on a daily basis, and yet people do it. And uh, surviving that and surviving with, with both ministers intact. I mean, they left on their own steam or because the people of Canada chose to initiate a cabinet change uh, rather than having people resign. Uh, that, that is a source of pride. Yeah, that, that's very fair. To, to pick up on the point briefly you said, I think it's worth, uh, worth mentioning. You, you referred to law enforcement mandates. That, that's, I think, pretty unique, uh, not entirely unique, but fairly unique about public safety is because of law enforcement mandates, say the RCMP, for instance, the ability of the minister and the minister's office in, and how they interact with the agencies is severely limited compared to other departments or agencies, right? Because there's a certain separation, there's a certain firewall that's put in place in terms of how you're allowed to communicate and interact with these organizations. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, there's there's Supreme Court case law on this, Campbell and Chirose, that that says, and, and I'm, I hope I'm doing justice to this, that the minister shall not tell the constable where to stand or how to keep watch. And, and that is the embodiment of the, the law enforcement activity. It means that you can tell the RCMP how they are to do their finances. You can tell them um, how to develop policy and what policies to develop, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can even tell them how to communicate to the press unless it's on a law enforcement issue. What right. you cannot do is tell them who to investigate and how, mm-hmm. uh, or even how to talk about that investigation. And it may seem fairly clear as we talk about it right now, but the number uh, of people who get confused about this while they are on the job, um, not necessarily, in, and, and in fact, not at all within our former ministerial office where it was you know, drilled into people day by day and they lived and died by it, mm-hmm. um, but just in the broader system. You know, why can't you tell the Mounties to do the following? Can I ask well, you a question about well, that? Well, because. Uh, so... The time that you, you were on public safety, I presume, was also the same time that the um, Senate scandal was happening with, with Mike Duffy. Yeah. So there was the the whole kerfuffle about the ITO, which is, a, is that, correct me if I'm wrong, information to obtain? That's right. Yes, though I heard the joke that it was intended for Tories only at some points as well. <laughs> um, so that was obviously an RCMP investigation uh, that was done. So did you guys, and like, you know, if you can't talk about this, fair, but if... Was there significant pressure from, you know, not necessarily just the center, but like other people in government saying like, hey, like, what's going on with this? Can you guys like put some pressure on them or like can you, you know, not so much put pressure in like an illegitimate sense, but like can you can you, can you make these guys see reason on this and like not be so unreasonable towards us? I, I have guess to say, in a fair-minded perspective. I have to say that situation was so high profile and so mm-hmm. tense that people went out of their way to respect the rules. Sure. Um, I knew that things were happening uh but it was pure knowledge yeah. and no no ability to in any way insert myself into the process mm-hmm. um essentially on pain of resignation and this sure. is true of any law enforcement matter yeah to suggest that something ought to be done a different way just means you bring your resignation letter with you you're yeah. done so you wouldn't say for instance that flipping should be illegal uh sorry if, if flipping should be illegal <laughs> through uh <laughs> You just, you just don't suggest anything. You, know? <laughs> you could say that something ought to be illegal as a matter of policy. What you cannot do is to say, that fellow over there 
has committed a flip. Yes. And ought to be uh, investigated as such. That's the impermissible sin. Right. That makes a certain amount of sense. Like, I was curious about that because I would imagine that there were, there would have been some... And I actually, I think the PMO would be smart enough to not do that because uh, I think they get it. But this seems like the type of thing where you're in the cafeteria with people and people say, hey, like, what's going on with that, you guys? Like... I think to to sort of build up upon the point, there are some lines that you just do not cross, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think. Uh, well, it's not to suggest that you guys did cross. I just no, want no, to be no. clear. It's that others just, would have but sort that of this, on you. This is certainly one of the areas where you'd put up a very strong firewall, mm-hmm. and I think there were some columnists who did themselves a disservice. <laughs> Um, by by suggesting that the RCMP was at the beck and call of the prime minister's office, this this was one of the narratives that some columnists um, pushed out, and I think it was an incredible disservice to the Canadian public, and also a disservice to the RCMP, who would never have tolerated such a thing. Like they know where this line is; it is so bright and so red, and they will not allow it to be crossed. And they made that very clear to us when we arrived. Um, we did a lot of talking around um, exactly what the line consisted of. For instance, we did want to be involved in RCMP communications because we felt at times the RCMP did not tell its own story as effectively as it might have been told. Um, and that's just a that's a, a reasonable disagreement yeah. amongst reasonable people about comms doctrine. Yeah, you know, you're going to do a good thing. Why don't you preposition that not on a, on an arrest? Yeah, that's dangerous. No, but if you have a new community initiative, let's tell that story properly yeah. so that you get the credit you deserve. Um, you know, the, these things uh, are permissible legally. Uh, and, and this fueled some really healthy debate, but ultimately some pretty good relationships um, with, the, with the force as they came to understand that we really do want you to look good. Yes, we look good when you look good, but primarily you look good. And that's good for recruitment and it's good for the uh, respect for the rule of law. Yeah. So the RCMP also is is a really strange agency uh, in the sense that it, it is plays a similar role to like the US FBI. Yeah. But also does a lot of like the, very specialized and very general the f- kind of like counterterrorism, does invest like federal investigations, does policing in a lot of communities, just the, like this is the split between federal policing and contract policing. Yes, and it's at the, it's a tension point in everything the RCMP does. I would imagine so because it's two very very different kinds of things, and I would imagine you need different kinds of people to do. And I would imagine it puts a big strain on sort of everything. That yeah, as you say, that everything they do has to kind of be seen through that prism. It's very difficult for the Mounties, in the sense that they're recruiting generalists into depot Mm -hmm. and then they're asking that person throughout the course of their career to do everything from traffic stops in Nain to human trafficking in Toronto Mm -hmm. or in the environs of Toronto. Toronto's a bad example. Pick another uh, (laughs) metropolitan area. Um, That's uh, a level of, um, of generality that does not lend itself well to the specificity of the task at hand. And so you, you, you get generalists acting in highly specialized roles right. and problems are bound to arise. So many of us have come to the position that contract policing simply should be wound up. Okay. Very good work. And it doesn't mean that in, in very rural areas there wouldn't still be a federal presence, which is often only the RCMP. Yeah. Uh, that could continue. 
It means that in major municipalities like Surrey, Surrey would be required to stand up its own police force mm -hmm. rather than using the RCMP. Yeah. And you'll get people writing to you about this, but <laughs> that unfortunately is how I feel. Yeah, well, that honestly kind of sounds reasonable to me. I think like a federal police should do federal stuff and local police should do local stuff. It doesn't seem that so, out of the realm of... You've, uh, you've alluded to this a little bit, that sometimes... You know, departments or agencies get into trouble um, of their own right. Um, and I know that certainly happened a fair amount, particularly with the RCMP. Can you talk about the tension that exists in the minister's office and, and for the minister of having to criticize his agency or his agency's response or their work and how you sort of and how that gets reconciled with ministerial accountability? Yeah, I mean, these are these are the worst moments because the minister uh, really within the system um, is designed to be somewhat of a champion for the agencies. Mm -hmm. And this is this is not completely divorced from politics in a conservative government. When law enforcers enforce the law, the government is seen to be successful because it is one of our quote unquote issues. We are meant to succeed in this area and the public expects us to and trusts us to. When things go wrong, not on a law enforcement issue per se, but maybe it's a financial issue, and the minister intervenes, sometimes harshly, because we try to do these things quietly behind the scenes in an amicable way, but if you can't get the traction you need and the issue is continuing to do damage either to the minister, to the government, or to the agency itself, or all three, it does sometimes become necessary to say, you know, as minister, I disagree with the following. and. and and both ministers I served came to places in their mandates where they had to to say things like that. Thankfully, these were limited circumstances. Um, we were able to negotiate peace in the aftermath and I think move forward with a better understanding of what the expectations were on both sides. So they can turn into positive outcomes, but they're pretty tense, as you say, in the midst of them. Yeah. Especially because with a lot of agencies, I mean, the interactions are daily, if not weekly, uh, with not only uh, the, the head of that agency, be it the president of the CBSA or the commissioner of the RCMP, but also their staff, that your office works hand in glove with the chief of staff for the commissioner's office or any of those senior staff. And so it's like two teams that work together. And it's like when, when you have tensions, it, it can become sort of problematic in, in the relationship between the two. I think what is critically important in these scenarios, difficult as they are, is to come back to first principles. The RCMP Act says that there shall be a commissioner who shall take direction from the minister. Uh, the minister has staff, but those staff literally, legally, are they're nobodies mm -hmm. except as extensions of the minister himself or herself. Right. In other words, if you're going to speak on the minister's behalf, you will speak with authority. And in our office, we would get that in writing. Mm -hmm. you know, we'd send up a briefing note, which would be a cover note to a to an official uh, or a note produced by officials. The minister would be required to sign off on that, so that we knew that as we provided direction, it wasn't from us. It was we were transmitting direction from the minister. It was very clear what was being transmitted. Right, and there, like Eddie Goldenberg famously talks about the trouble you can get into when it's not clear where the signals are coming from. Yeah, uh, I think it was a dinner he was having with a Ar Armenian senator of Armenian descent, and he had mentioned that like 
he was seeking support for you know, a private member's bill recognizing the Armenian genocide, and Eddie Goldenberg said, I have no problem with that. And then they assumed that that meant the PMO would support it, and then yeah. that turned into a whole thing, and it was, uh, it was difficult. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's the danger of uh, sort of going uh, freelancing. So you, you said in our office we got written direction, and in our office they were called blue notes, right, because of the paper that they were printed on. And the idea of p- printing them on this paper was that not much is made on literal blue paper these days. Is that reasonably unique, or was that standard operating process across all of government? Like, would the liberals today still be doing their political notes to their ministers in the same way, or is it conceivable that some would go more on uh, verbal briefings, despite the political risks that that may carry? I assume they use red paper. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. You all would, would use use orange. Uh, yeah. we used, yeah, orange is probably the best for readability. We used any color other than white because these were meant to be uh, political papers. Right. And, and yes, they, they fall into a category for retention, but they were not meant to circulate in the department because they were confidential. They contained confidential advice to the minister from the political, right, political advice. Yeah. 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 So I assume, as a matter of best practice, that everyone does this. Uh, I don't know that for a fact. Sure. Anywhere I went, I tried to institute that simply so I could control what was going up from my desk. And then others seemed to adopt that because it, it not only didn't get lost in the shuffle, it was yeah. it, it would catch the minister's attention. Ah, blue paper. Right. I will read this. So one thing that the Harper government, I personally, like this system has been described both by you and by uh, Paul Wilson, who has appeared on this podcast, who you work for, yeah. I think we were talking before, and yeah. that, you know, I think both, I think everyone at this table has immense respect for, and like he, he described a very similar system. And yeah. like, I think if I were setting up a government, just that makes sense, right? It's sort of this like document flow, you're getting it from two sources, you're getting your nonpartisan public service advice, you're getting your partisan political advice, yeah. and your job as minister is to make the decisions, taking into account those yeah. sets of things, and the political staff in theory, know their place. They don't freelance on things. So the Harper government became, I think, notorious, you know, and unpopular in part because there was a perception that um, their political staff were kind of running amok. So the name of this podcast, right, The Boys in Short Pants, comes from, of course, Wayne Easter uh, saying in the House of Commons that, and of course, Mike Duffy saying that there were these boys in short pants from the PMO telling everyone what to do. So... In the system you've described, that doesn't happen. So how how did that happen? So I think the problem here is not that people were acting without authority from either a minister or the prime minister. There were instances, I think, where that did happen. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are, are celebrated to this day. Um, but I think they were rare. I think what you saw instead were officials reacting quite badly and quite understandably to being told what to do without being given a fair hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a remarkable human tendency to revolt when you feel you have something important to say, critically important, something that might actually change the decision, if only you could get the words out and be heard fairly. Mm-hmm. And so one thing we tried to do in our former office, even if we knew where we were going, was to give people an opportunity to say their piece. Mm-hmm. I found that once people had that opportunity, uh, and they were met with respect. Yeah. Uh, even if they were then told that no, we will, we will, we will not be going that way because the minister has made a decision to the contrary. 
and he has been supported by his cabinet colleagues in the following uh, the following forum, and mm-hmm. you know that. Uh, people could accept that by and large. Rare was the official who would say, no, I want to come back and revisit this uh, unless there was a fundamental change in circumstances. Right. That's my theory of the case, that folks got real upset because they weren't being listened to, yeah. or at least they felt that way. Not because people, staffers, were actually acting outside the scope of their authority. Mm-hmm. What I what I would add to that is I don't. Some of the instances I can think of weren't necessarily about scope. Um, there were certainly instances where young staff, and that's where you know boys comes from, twenty um, something year olds, too big for their short pants, you could say. Twenty <laughs> uh, something year olds. It, when you are given a a lot of power at a very young age, mm. I, I think that can have bad consequences depending on who the individual is and that's certainly something you have to watch is arrogance ego and all of those things become a factor in political staffing of of all stripes right um so i think that is in part where the term came from yeah and there's like there was a heavy-handed treatment of not only public service officials but also elected mps senators who i guess i don't know where they're getting off on this they have the same (laughs) same level of legitimacy i guess but, uh, like, certainly MPs, it is somewhat galling for you to be a professional career person, uh, and for the most part, and then come into this, you know, fairly demanding and, and involved career that takes you away from your, your home and family quite often. And then to have a, you know, a snot-nosed 20-year-old come and tell you what sure. to do, I would imagine is pretty galling, just on a personal level. So, wait, let's bridge back to the career element of this. Sure. Um, serving as chief of staff... What what does so what does a chief of staff do? Let's sort of just start there. Nothing. <laughs> it's a fantastic job in the sense that you get to build the best team you can, and you don't have to depend on the, the team members uh, being elected first. You get right. to choose literally from anyone, anywhere. They don't even have to be Canadian. Uh, there were some very good staffers who who came from abroad. Um, you uh, usually don't carry files of your own. At least that would be my recommendation to anyone who is chiefing at present uh, because you're doing air traffic control. You're doing a ton of HR. Um, you're doing troubleshooting. You're, you are the chief diplomat for the minister's office. Mm-hmm. You end up being the chief enforcer if diplomacy fails. You are the person responsible for the ultimately for the care and feeding of the minister. Um a huge amount of your time is is sapped uh, by administrative matters. And if you're not prepared to do the admin side of being a chief, you should be a director of policy. Like if you really are completely dedicated to being part of the lawmaking process as an advisor, being a chief may not be the job for you. Um, the best and brightest and smartest people in most offices are the director of policy. And I say that with the greatest deference to everyone else in the office, uh, that those people uh, need to have the skill set to really figure out what is being proposed for signature here and how do I brief most effectively. Yeah. Now, you, you eliminate other roles in the office, you really automatically get into trouble. The most important person in the office is the scheduler. Right. Always. Yeah. Um, the chief doesn't even rank in that equation other than making sure that there is a good scheduler, that yeah. that person is happy, that they get paid. Um, it seems so mundane, uh, but in the era in which we live, it's a big deal, uh, the HR side. 
So uh, maybe I've sort of lost the track on the... Uh, no, no, no I, th I think that's fair. Um, when you describe it as air traffic controller, I think that is... There's the HR, HR side, which is, of course, uh, comparable to uh, an HR manager or boss in a small business, something along those lines. Um, and then there's the air traffic controller. So you would sit in on a lot of different meetings on a lot of different topics and be briefed on basically everything that went through the office to likely to a less granular level than the policy advisor on that particular topic or the director of policy. But there was a high level role of reviewing virtually everything um, that went to the minister for signature to the minister for review or many of the meetings that the minister was in. Um, which is which is a very significant role. Um, I, I would rank it on that spectrum in terms of importance. I, I don't think that can be downplayed too, too much. Maybe the most important job, and I know it was annoying to all of you guys when, when, we, when we did this, um, the morning meetings. Um, it's the moment where uh, all members of the political staff get to have a say in that's hard because you've got to go right around the table and in larger offices that's rough in terms of keeping it to a half an hour. Sure. But it's a chance for people to say, I think we should do the following or I think we should refrain from doing the following. Yeah. And my job was largely to simply referee that discussion so that people who had something to say of relevance got to say it. Yeah. And it didn't matter if they were the most junior assistant uh, or they were the longest serving director. There had to be a moment where people could say, look, I'm concerned about this and I need to put this on the table yeah. and then have it fairly debated. And this comes back to just being heard. Yeah. It's not only applicable to officials. It's critically important to political staff. Uh, if you can't say your piece yeah. about something that you've been laying awake all night worrying about, well, you can't really do your job. Mm -hmm. And so chiefs who facilitate those discussions, I think, really succeed. Yeah. And those who don't largely end up with failed offices. Do you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I think that particularly is an element just the, in terms of being in a political office is the ability to just say, I think this is a bad idea and here's yeah. why. Yeah. And, you know, from day one is such a critically important thing and something that would keep me out of the public service forever because I don't think I have the, <laughs> the natural deference to be able to just, you know. Sit quiet at the table because you're not of the level exactly. that should be talking so right now. For, I think that is, especially for people who get into political jobs, they don't fall in there by accident. They get yeah. there because they're typically very dedicated people who've worked for, you know, political party as a volunteer or staff and like want to really get involved in some aspect of that work. And they're there because like typically, you know, you don't have a lot of like wallflowers in political yeah. offices. So I, I think like that's funny you identify that because that's something I've definitely noticed like in my own work is something I value extremely highly. Yeah. So, yeah. We actually took it so far as to say that if, if a staff member who had carriage of a file wished to create a blue briefing memo mm -hmm. to the minister, um, I wouldn't interfere with that. They could write their advice because their advice is, by definition, their advice. Right. I would write, usually just in pen, I wouldn't create a whole memo. I disagree for the following reasons. But you've now, minister, had the benefit of the advice of the person who is who knows most about this file, mm -hmm. probably of anyone in the department, right? because they have talked to this official and that official and they've gone to the agencies and they are aware of what the issues are. Um, I'm free to disagree, but I'm not free to say, change your mind. Yeah. That's where danger, I think, enters in. Sure. But you, both in officialdom and in the political class. Mm -hmm.
So, especially towards the end of the mandate, that's mostly what I'm familiar with in terms of your career, there was, you know, we passed or introduced a significant amount of legislation. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like a record number of MCs that went through cabinet and were eventually tabled. Uh, some, but not all of them passed. Um, what was sort of your, what, what achievement of your time in political office, I guess legislative or otherwise, do you sort of hold on to and think was your most significant um, contribution to public policy in Canada? So it, it is a hard question because it was a five-year span and, and there, were, there were things done um, prior to that. The two things, and both of these will, will strike some of your listeners as surprising, probably shocking. I am most proud of mandatory minimum penalties on certain offenses and C-51, which is the uh, anti-terrorism act. Very popular choices. Very popular choices. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to, you know, well, Etienne pick has, a fight. Etienne has his, his framed C-51 around the corner. Signed by the minister. Yeah, we all yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> I um, actually have a copy myself. Good. That Etienne has given me. <laughs> That's fantastic. As you I don't have it framed, but... Uh... And, and, and the, reasons, the reasons, I think, bear some uh, explanation because they will not be popular choices for or, or will not strike people as popular choices. Uh, on mandatory minimums, I had a lot of clients when I was a legal aid lawyer who simply needed a series of life skills that could not be acquired in within the scope of the sentences they were regularly receiving. In other words, they really needed to go to an institution where they could deal with literacy issues, anger issues, addictions issues, and then move on and move through that correctional path to acquire life skills yeah. and job skills. That doesn't happen in six months. It, it really is a yeah. two-year process. And so as I applied my experience at legal aid uh, to the legislative agenda, that is one of the things that I thought was really, really productive, not because it was red meat for the conservative base, but because it was the right thing to do. On C-51, you know, (laughs) people just at one point, um, well, let me back up for a second. As polling showed, for what that's worth, it was one of the most popular bills of our time. For the first couple months. For the first couple months. (laughs) And in fact, it may have even gone on longer. And then, of course, opposition built to it. At the end of the day, the bill was brought forward in its content by officials. We turned to officials in the wake of the attack on Parliament Hill in October of 2014 and said, what do you need to ensure this does not happen again? And of course, they said the obvious things like we need better security on the Hill. We need an integrated security force that is that is effective. Mm -hmm. Um, We said, sure, absolutely. That that is a no brainer that has to get done. And then they presented us with a a list of other things that they felt they really needed. We chose we being the government, namely um, the cabinet and ultimately what was presented to parliament was half that list. In other words, officials, not, not conservatives. Uh, presented a list that was actually whittled down uh, by by conservatives because some of them were felt to be maybe too extreme or too far. Sure. Um, so that, it's a deep state. <laughs> <laughs> some of it was as simple as information sharing. Sure. You know, if you are an official of the government of Canada and you know that someone is traveling home from Syria, you now, in the wake of 51, which, which has been preserved in 59, have the ability... Uh, I would say the obligation to say to a security official, I am concerned. I'm in consular affairs, but I'm concerned this person is applying for a passport 
having been a fighter in Syria and now they're coming home to Canada because they have a right of re-entry. That to me is, I, I don't know, it, it's almost beyond debate, although it has been debated <laughs> thoroughly. Um, I'm proud of the advancements that were made and the fact that they've endured, although the Liberals have put in now a series of procedural hoops that yeah. that officials have to jump through, which grates against my view that these are emergency powers. Sure. They're designed to be used on a rainy day. And if you have to jump through seven committees to use them, that's maybe a problem. So anyway, I'll stop there. Those are probably two surprising areas that I'm proud of and hopefully I've explained why. No, I, I think that's fair. Um, let's let's build I on... I don't, I don't get my, my two cents here. <laughs> Come on. Um, I think I, I'll just, I'll just... I mean, you know, I think we could, we could sit here all day on, yeah, on this stuff. Know. But uh, I, I on the mandatory minimums, I think what you've presented is a very good case for why our institutions should focus on rehabilitation. I don't think empirically that that is necessarily the case and that if we had prisons that were empirically demonstrated to be effective at rehabilitating people and I think like they should be that would be that would be great that would make a lot more sense to me that we have institutions that give people you know the the life skills that they need to lead a life that is productive and and not criminal I think that's great I don't think that I think people who oppose these things come at it from perspective of that's not what our institutions are about at all and you know what that's that's a fair like point of disagreement that reasonable people would disagree on, but I just want to get that. Sure. Uh, and on the... I actually don't disagree with you. Oh, okay, great. Well, I mean, we there we need, go. We need, within the Correctional Service of Canada, uh, there's a brand new commissioner. I yeah. think the old commissioner did his level best. <laughs> uh, there's a brand new commissioner. Um, we should be doing better yeah. at making sure that when people leave, they have options other than crime. Yeah. And if they aren't prepared to exercise those options, we need better tools to make sure that they can't re-victimize people. Yeah, that makes that seems like a, a reasonable kind of middle ground yeah. there. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's probably where I would have started <laughs> from that end of the, the equation rather than the, the minimum side, but I, I, can see, I can see the case there. On C51, I think people are just, especially from my end of the political spectrum, just very suspicious mm. of, like, once you give a security agency a power, that's you're just never going to take it away from them. Uh, I think especially we've been, Tan and I've had this discussion a couple times on information sharing specifically. What I'm particularly concerned about uh, is stuff where you have agencies like Indigenous Affairs that have meticulous records of people's you know, health, etc., like yeah. every aspect of people's lives that they can then share with police agencies or intelligence agencies seems, seems to me to be really beyond the pale of what's reasonable i think like you've outlined a case where that is you know you'd probably want the consular services person to flag that but i can think of you know many other cases where you'd be very concerned about that kind of information getting shared within government but it is a like you know finely shaded thing i think and like case by case thing it's important to remember that there has to be a nexus with national security and this has to be governed by uh, agreements between the departments yeah. like they this can't be willy-nilly sharing but, yeah, I, exactly. but I agree with you yeah. that there there needs to be oversight and mm -hmm. now I think we have increased oversight and and let me give the the libs full credit for for coming to a place where I, I call them hoops some of them and that's a pejorative term some of them I think are unnecessary others make a good deal of sense mm -hmm. but what we're seeing here overall is an evolution towards better security uh, brought about by the two mainstream parties in succession that to me is a good thing um, 
two of the mainstream parties. <laughs> I would never want to leave anyone out. Um, that's important in terms of are we are we safer today than we were prior to 2014? And my view is, and, and you can go on for a long time on the details sure. of this. Yes, we are. Yeah, and I, I should like I'm neither a criminal justice expert nor a security expert, so I you know I'm always hesitant to to wade into these things, but I did did want to get. At least my little piece in there. <laughs> of course. I, I would expect nothing less. Um, you stated in there, or in Laurent's piece, he talked about sunset clauses. Can I you did ta- not talk about sunset well, clauses. Well, you, you did talk about it. You, you said at least indefinitely. Um, rather than limited time powers. Can, oh, I see. So you, you infer it. Okay. I, I remember this being in the conversations about C-51. Yeah. What was sort of the policy rationale against sunset clauses broadly? It, it's not even necessarily for this piece of legislation, for, but for any piece of government legislation. What, what are the problems presented by sunset clauses? It's easy. Stéphane Dion. And let me explain that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to 2007 when the original Anti-Terrorism Act, which was a, a uh, piece of liberal legislation um, approved in the wake of September 11th, uh, it contained a sunset clause for what what the conservatives viewed, viewed at the time as important powers, mm-hmm. uh, namely what what used to be called preventative arrest, uh, and I think people still use that uh, that concept or that wording. Um, and uh, and the second power helped me preventative arrest and investigative hearings, which have never I think been used, uh, but are by definition meant to be rainy day powers. Mm-hmm. Those two uh, were subject to a sunset clause in 07 post-leadership. As the story goes, Mr. Dion had been approached uh, possibly on the floor of the convention uh, in which he won the leadership um, by a liberal MP who said, look, if you get rid of the sunset powers, sunset clauses, uh, sorry, if you get rid of these powers, I will support you. Now, this is completely rumor-based but it was borne out to a certain extent by the position the Liberals took uh, vis-a-vis their own legislation, uh, you know, six years later, uh, by allowing them to expire. And it was, it, it really, uh, it took a lot of um, discussion and horse trading to, to try to move forward. Those powers actually expired and it had to be, had to be brought back in. Mm-hmm. Um, so sunset clauses sound great as a negotiating tool when you are instituting legislation uh, for the first time. It's amazing how quickly five years pass. Uh, it's one of the problems with, with the idea of sunset clauses in NAFTA. Uh, that time, time passes so quickly, political factors come into play, events, as the <laughs> saying goes. Right. And next thing you know, what is an important part of a bill uh, become law is gone. Because simply not because of a, democrat, a subsequent democratic choice, but because of a past democratic choice that had a, uh, a fuse that mm-hmm. ran down. And that's my problem with sunset clauses in the security world in particular. Yeah, it presumes that five years from now or whenever the sunset uh, is set to trigger, that the government of the day is going to be in a position to rationally consider it in terms of political capital, in terms of political resources, in terms of legislative time, all of yeah. these other things. Which is where things like review mechanisms are, I think, more sure, interesting so, than yeah, sunset. Like, I'd say like any sort of like bill that creates any kind of like statutory regime, whether it be conflict interest lobbying, I don't know, there's probably a fisheries one <laughs> uh, of some sort. It's like there's 10-year, like a lot of them establish crown corporations, so BDC, EDC, etc. 
every 10 years, basically, Parliament takes a look at the legislation and, you know, pokes around the corners um, and is there anything we can get rid of or update here? And they bring the people in, you know, who are overseeing that regime to mm. talk about it in front of a committee. And it's it's a good system on the whole. Uh, I think there will be um, lobbying act yeah. for review this year, actually. Yeah. Um, so that'll that'll be interesting. Watch the ethics committee, I guess, for that. Um, so yeah, that, that that's a good system. I personally still think like that's like not necessarily the worst thing if like a power is seen as not subsequently important enough by government that they feel the need to like it's so critical that they feel the need to renew it. I think that comes once again from my perspective that like anything that is sort of like kept in a state of tension with sort of security agencies is probably a good thing. And that like, if you can't be bothered to make the case proactively for it on a continuous basis, maybe they shouldn't have it. Uh, But once again, that really just comes from a place of deep skepticism of security services. I'd agree with you, but for the reality of minority parliaments. Yeah, that's plausible to me. Yeah. So just to finish off one last point on C-51. So when C-51 came about, I mean, it was fairly shortly into my, I mean, my entire career was fairly short. It was fairly short into Already my Already over time. again. <laughs> Just, you know, it's a But impactful. I mean, you know, let's, let's, not, uh, let's not minimize things here. Into my time um, on the Hill. And what, one of the things I took away, and I still consider this day, not only from sitting in on the issues call, but also from being in the briefings where, in, in some of the morning meetings, we would have a review of the media with officials where officials would go through everything that was misleading or wrong about the reporting and the coverage about what was being mis- misrepresented and what was being misunderstood the fake news if you will so that th- so that it could be addressed i mean this isn't uh, intended as a slight towards journalists it's that yeah. their role is very demanding well they're non-experts that have to cover everything they're under the sun yeah, in in on very short time frames inevitably will make errors um, but it gave me a perspective of reporting that I think is very different unless you've had someone report thoroughly on an area where you're an expert. My my sister's made the same point. She's like, she works in environmental uh, monitoring and until she reads articles about environmentally environmental monitoring that are completely wrong yeah. on, on many yeah. different points. This is what I call the economist problem. She she didn't come to, to appreciate <laughs> it. And it's the same with guns. Gunnies always complain about basic factual things yeah. being yeah. wrong in gun articles yeah. Yeah. and so on and so forth. So being inside of C-51, I, I really, or inside of the, not the department, but the uh, ministry during C-51, I really saw... Uh, a different perspective that I think is worth seeing of government. And to a certain extent, I've heard the same thing from civil servants who express this when the media reports on their uh, areas of expertise. You had sort of an anecdote that you've shared in iPolitics about sort of something along, roughly along these lines where the media spin on it be rooted in opposition or just uh, misunderstanding went in a completely unexpected direction and not one that yeah. sort of jived with reality. You want to tell me about that one? Yeah, I mean, this, and first let's give the nod to journalists. I couldn't do the job. I, I'd have a heart attack if I had to <laughs> to meet a deadline every day. Yeah. I don't even, like four o'clock or, or, you know, you get complaints from the minister's office and yeah. then you have to come back to work and keep going. Until well, and you're at the mercy of, you know, sources and people you're 
waiting on for a quote, etc. Like uh, it's I, a nightmare. Yeah, this this is not to bash them at all. It's just the the reality of reporting is that yeah. it's a very demanding profession yeah. where you don't have a lot of time. Um, and a lot of expertise in what you're necessarily reporting on. And praise be to the beat journalists who still exist because yes. they're doing some of the best work. So, so having acknowledged that reality, <laughs> uh, to answer the question, yeah, a very strange narrative uh, grew up in, um, in media, in very mainstream media. In fact, I think it's still Canada's largest circulation newspaper, the Toronto Star, that clearly C-51 would inexorably lead to CSIS holding people, detaining them in CSIS jails. And if you've ever been to the CSIS headquarters, and you know, I know a lot of people listening have never been to the CSIS headquarters. And, <laughs> I have never been to the CSIS headquarters. And I think we could probably get you a tour. I think it's a hard tour. And a good one, too. Not a, not a negative tour. Um, you know, the, the preposterous nature of that allegation, based both on the physical inability... Uh, to hold people in the basement of CSIS. I've been there. There's a Starbucks. Uh, uh, there's no... The supply closets are... <laughs> you know, there, are, there is no room to, to hold people. Um, the legal impossibility, I mean, CSIS can only do what it is authorized to do in legislation, a point famously debated before the federal court at multiple junctures. But the, the baseline uh, legal reality is you yeah. can't do what isn't written on the page. Sure. Nothing in C-51 would allow CSIS to incarcerate people. It's just not permitted. Yeah. I mean, um, on the subject of intelligence agencies only being allowed to do what they're allowed to do, I mean, that's true until it isn't. I mean, like, what this is more of an American problem. And once again, like, a lot of our issues and neuroses about the security state come from looking at the U.S., but, like, the CIA was not authorized to torture people and operate black site prisons in third countries, but they did it, and it's well documented, right? This isn't like a, a paranoid fantasy people have. It's like a thing that happened. So let me acknowledge that in the U.S. context and acknowledge that that paranoia is legitimate because sure. we take so much of our, our uh, information about the world from U.S. sources. Right, so Five Eyes thing is like, yeah, we, critical. We, we transpose it into the Canadian environment. I guess where, where it becomes preposterous is when you have any understanding of the resources allotted to CSIS. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a different um, thing, right? Like, But it, once again, it's like people, because we're so integrated with the U.S. media and think, like sort of entertainment yeah. culture and all this, people watch Jack Bauer or whatever and like yeah. hear about the CIA, you know, prison black sites and all the torture and all that and they think oh well you know it must be happening here. sure and like i think yeah you're right like CSIS compared to the cia is like a, a real shoestring operation you know um, in the grand scheme of things but like an operation yeah. that an operation that does really fine work that the cia often draws upon uh not as a large percentage but they're a trusted partner in the sure. five eyes community but arising out of their very creation which, as you probably know, was a reaction to uh, excesses committed um, in, in the early 80s and uh, unfortunately out of a, a predecessor organization. In other words, the whole design of CSIS and the reason it exists yeah. is to be rights respecting. Yeah. And if you've ever sat in a meeting with CSIS lawyers and argued with them, <laughs> you can tell that, what, that yeah. their disposition is entirely uh, towards ensuring that they do not run into problems uh, with the with the oversight bodies, uh, with the review committee itself, um, you know. So I, I appreciate this is an insider's view 
within a, a time period and a window of history. But my impression is that, and this was borne out in our daily workload, we didn't run into problems with CSIS very often. When we did, they were big problems. They were usually not matters of intent sure. uh, or even negligence. They were simply events in the world colliding and that agency doing its level best to, to get through and get by. Um, in any event, uh, the article written was simply to say, guys, look, the words aren't on the page, the resources aren't in the bank, nor is the agency of this disposition. The incarceration of human beings is really bloody awful. And ask anyone at the Correctional Service, uh, you don't want people in your custody. Mm -hmm. So the allegation that CSIS would intentionally incarcerate people uh, without a charge uh, in, in some sort of clandestine uh, sense, it, I respect where people were coming from, which is probably a healthy paranoia about the world generally. The specific reality of Canada is that that's just not on. Sure. Um, I suppose on uh, that we should we should probably wrap her up here. We're yeah, I mean, almost an hour. I can certainly keep continue talking to you <laughs> about this at length for many hours, but we usually try to keep it around an hour for our for our listeners' sake. This is just therapeutic for you. So we'll, we'll take it offline. <laughs> so Andrew House, thank you very much for for appearing on the show. This was a, a very fun hour, actually. I think we got a, a lot a lot of good stuff out there. So yeah, covered a broad range. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. And uh, for oh yeah, I guess we'll just do the the beer review quickly. Yeah. How'd you like the How'd you like the first one? I uh, like everything from my good friends at Dominion City, and this was no exception. Uh, Bumbleberry, and you'll help me pronounce this. Honestly, I've never been good. It's uh, I think it's goes. I think it's just I think you you live if you say goes. Yeah, it might right. be with it might be with a little umlaut. Gosse, goose. Yeah, it's named after Gosler, Germany, or at least the, the original recipe I believe comes from Gosler, Germany. So that, that gives you some hints. Anyway, so bumbleberry goes. I'm just gonna say goes. Uh, made with some some bumbleberries, which I think is not a real thing. But it's a, it's a combination of berries. That's uh, a combination is, is of berries. The it's definition sort of, of a bumbleberry. And Nova Scotia sea salt. And Nova Scotia sea salt. Yes, as is traditional for goes. So that was very good, actually. Very fruity, very refreshing. How'd you like that one? Like was that your one. your first time having a bumbleberry goes? It actually was. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say, and I really liked it, especially for summertime drinking. Yeah, yes. very good. Beautiful. And uh, I guess we also had the Beyond the Pale, what, what, what did we have? Project there? Pale Ale. Project Pale Ale. Pretty good. I mean, it's an, it's an IPA. Yeah. It's an IPA. That's our endorsement. Well, it's a pale ale, not, <laughs> not an IPA. Okay. It's a pale ale. It was good. A, a distinction, sometimes without a difference, but in this case, with a difference. Sure. So uh, that will do it for us this week. You can follow us at Short Pants Pod. I will be on vacation uh, for the next uh, two weeks or so. Uh, Tian may or may not get you an episode. In the meantime, uh, time will tell. We'll, we'll see if I care to discuss Maxine Bernier. Andrew, what, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye.